an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, former Congressman Jim McDermott is still thinking big about cross-state travel. If you want to help the people in eastern Washington, what they need is a sea-level tunnel under the Cascades. And then, from the archives, the long-ago fight to rename Empire Way after Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We have the only municipality in the country named for Martin Luther King, Jr., up in the remote northwest. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And it's Friday, which means our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joins us for All Over the Map, which is Felix's quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the story of a foreign missionary who very much wanted to visit the Columbia River nearly 200 years ago. Good morning, Felix. Warren Dave, yeah, this story is from the early weeks of 1829. There was a Presbyterian missionary stationed in Hawaii named Jonathan S. Green, He was from Connecticut and had been sent there to what was called the Sandwich Islands in 1828 by the same group that a decade later would send the Whitmans to what's now Walla Walla. All through the 1820s, missionaries in Hawaii had been hearing about the northwest coast from fur traders aboard ships that stopped off there. The way the wind and currents worked, any ship coming to or from Cape Horn would naturally use Hawaii as a rest stop. From what they heard from the sailors, it seemed to the missionaries that the indigenous people all along the northwest coast, from what's now southern Oregon all the way to Alaska, who were a logical next target for missionary activities. So after less than a year in Hawaii, Jonathan Green managed to get passage on a bark or a small sailing ship called Volunteer. They sailed from Honolulu on February 13th. Four weeks later, they sighted land. They were near what's now Sitka, Alaska. In those days, it was the capital of Russian America. It was called New Archangel. Jonathan Green was received there by Governor Peter Chestikoff. He took fairly detailed notes about customs and dress and wrote down hundreds of words in native language. He also kept a journal, and and that's how we know about what he did. It was published in 1915. It's considered an early, if somewhat amateur, anthropological resource. Now, Green was really intent on getting farther south. The missionary leadership and Green himself were particularly taken with what's now um, Washington and Oregon, and in particular the mouth of the Columbia River. But from March to August, he was kind of stuck at the whim of the captain of the boat. Um, At one point, there was a knife fight and a gunfight on board the ship. He had to care for a wounded crew member. And they kept going back to uh, to good old Governor Chestikoff there in New Archangel and just couldn't get out of the Queen Charlotte Islands or what's now Haida Gwaii. Finally, in late August, the volunteer headed south toward where Green really wanted to go ashore. And this is what Green wrote. We endeavored to enter the Straits of Juan de Fuca, but on account of an easterly wind, did not succeed. So they struck out trying to get into Puget Sound. And then, here's what he wrote. We made for the Columbia River, spent several days in the latitude of the river, and saw land in the immediate vicinity of the country I so much desired to visit, Cape Disappointment and Point Adams, between which land the river empties, we distinctly saw, and for several hours were within a few miles of them. But that's as close as poor Jonathan Green would get. It seems like the name Cape Disappointment, which was from 1878 and uh, had been chosen by Captain John Mears, who had failed to even find the river, was still apt 50 years later. So Jonathan Green never got to set foot in the Northwest. Um, he lived a long life in Maui, though. He's a big promoter of agriculture and was known there by some as the Apostle of Wheat. Uh, he died there in 1878 in his early 80s, and it's unclear, again, if he ever made it back to the Northwest. And in terms of the battle between the different missionaries, the Methodists got here first. Uh, Jason Lee reached the Willamette Valley in 1834 and established a pretty strong foothold for Methodism in that part of the Northwest. Huh. 
So is nothing named after Mr. Green then, considering he never got... Just this, this little book, they printed 160 copies of this little book in 1915, and you can find PDFs of it online, but I had never heard of him. I stumbled across him recently and thought, wow, here's an early account of the Northwest Coast mm. and this poor guy who just got to see it but never got to touch it. <laughs> uh, I felt that way sometimes waiting for my airplane to take off. Yeah, it's I... like circling SeaTac for hours. Yeah. This is what this guy did for months. <laughs> Felix Spinell. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Serving Greater Seattle. The heavy snow that shut down traffic over Snoqualmie Pass and Stevens Pass a few weeks ago inspired a former member of Congress from Seattle to reach out to Governor Jay Inslee with a bold solution for avoiding similar problems in the future. The solution is over 100 years old. And so that, of course, got our resident historian, Felix Spinell, all excited to go deep on the story. The older the story (laughs) is, the more he likes it. Felix (laughs) is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. You're not talking about a tunnel, are you? I'm talking about when dinosaurs roamed the earth. No, I'm not. Um, The story is a little convoluted in some respects and pretty simple in others. So I spoke with former Representative Jim McDermott a few days ago. You know, he retired from Congress five years ago after yes. representing the 7th District for 14 terms. <clears throat> he first came to Seattle from Chicago in 1966. To get here, he drove with his wife and their six-week-old baby, and they came over Snoqualmie Pass for the very first time in a two-door hardtop Corvair pulling a U-Haul trailer. Wow. Now, so during the big snow and the closure of the passes a few weeks ago and those shortages in the grocery stores, McDermott, who's 85 now and living part of the year in France, but reading the paper online and watching CNN, well, he sent an email to Governor Inslee reviving an idea for a major piece of infrastructure. Maybe you can see where I'm going here. Now, this wasn't originally Jim McDermott's idea. It came from a now-deceased legislator from Tacoma named Slim Rasmussen, and the nickname Slim was ironic, apparently. Now, this goes back 42 years to when Jim McDermott was looking for campaign ideas to connect with eastern Washington voters because he was a liberal from Seattle running for governor against Republican John Spellman. And I thought, well, you know, that reminds me of my campaign in 1980. I asked Slim Rasmussen, I said, you know, I'm a guy from Seattle. What can I do that might attract attention from eastern Washington? And he was, a, he was an old locomotive engineer. He was Slim Rasmussen. And, and he had worked on the railroad. And Slim said to me, Jim, if you want to help the people in eastern Washington, what they need is a sea-level tunnel under the Cascades. And he said, there's one planned here a long time ago, many years ago. I never saw the plans or anything. He just told me that. And so I thought, well, um, I proposed that if I became governor, I'd push through a, a ground level, you know, so we could have a, a an all-weather transportation between Seattle and, and eastern Washington. Wow. Seems like a great idea. We love tunnels around here. Yeah. Now, the idea, it wasn't exactly a sea-level tunnel. It was more of a below-the-snow-level tunnel for cars and trains. It was something Slim Rasmussen had read an old report about. Jim McDermott can't remember if he made this an official part of his 1980 platform, but he says he did talk about it on the campaign trail. So I got in touch with a great friend of the show, Benjamin Helley at the Washington Archives, and he found an incredible 100-page report from 1936. It's just packed with amazing facts and bizarre twists of about 30 years of history of plans for Cascade Tunnels. Now, the original idea for a Cascade Tunnel, anywhere from 29 miles to 68 miles long, (laughs) which sounds crazy, goes back to 1907, and Hiram M. Chittenden, the Army Corps of Engineers genius who built the government locks connecting Puget Sound to Lake Washington back in 1916, 
and who was something of a complicated figure in local history. Now, there were other studies in the 20s, and this 1936 study is actually pretty discouraging about the tunnel's prospects and feasibility. You know, they quote Chittenden's estimates, and they say he probably lowballed it. Um, the 1936 cost for a 30-mile tunnel was somewhere from $62 million to $100 million, and I think that's about $3 billion in 2022 dollars. Yeah. You know, build back better. They worried that seeking federal funding for a tunnel back then, this is the middle of the Depression, right, would threaten other federal projects, uh, projects that were underway, like the Grand Coulee Dam or those big reclamation irrigation projects in the Big Bend area of the Columbia River Basin. And they also, also said that one of the attractions of driving for recreational purposes was the view, and that goes away, of course, with a long tunnel. And they didn't actually settle on a single route. Uh, it could have been Snoqualmie Pass or Stevens Pass or even Natchez Pass, and that it varied from, I think, 29 to, to 68 miles. Now, one thing they also said, which changed, was that snow removal in 1909 was pretty crude, or 1907, but that's, the state had gotten much better at it by equipping two-man snowplow crews with two-way radios and directing traffic and having them move to where the, where the problems were. So Chittenden, in his report, says the passes would be closed for months at a time back then. But in 1909, the passes were like dirt roads, pretty rudimentary and rough. And this report says that by the winter of 1930-1931, state crews were able to keep Snoqualmie Pass open year-round for the first time. And that seems pretty recent to me. So this tunnel, you know, is it a thing? I guess the first indicator is the response that Jim McDermott got from Governor Inslee, and this is a Cairo News Radio exclusive. And when I talked to Jay, the thing you don't know is um, he responded to me. And he said, Jim, it's a great idea. He said, but i got to tell you something. I've been talking to Peter DeFazio, and uh, it looks like uh, whatever money you get is going to go into a high-speed rail between Portland and Vancouver. And uh, he said, you were always 40 years ahead of the curve. And I laughed and said, well, you know, what the hell? <laughs> so this this one is, is an idea that if you think long-term, if you think the weather's going to get better around here, I mean, Leavenworth is buried in snow, right? That's what's happening here. And it, from an environmental standpoint, it makes good sense to do it. You know, and uh, to be clear, Representative Peter DeFazio of Oregon's chair of Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. So that was Inslee talking about federal money. Uh, you know, with Sully's help, I checked with Washtenaw, I checked with the governor's office and got essentially the same polite response. You know, it's not something currently under consideration. And please stop wasting our time, you little history weirdo. I made up that last part. Now, on the surface, you know, no pun intended, a 50-mile-long tunnel seems like a pretty wacky idea. But a couple things have changed since 1936 that might be significant. The first is about is – they're both related to climate change. And the first is whether or not big, snowy shutdowns of the passes are going to become more common. And the second is, does a long tunnel with electric trains and cars mean a smaller carbon footprint than how we currently move people and freight over the Cascades, you know, using gas and diesel-powered cars and trains? Um at one point in my conversation with Jim McDermott, he mentioned longtime Democratic former senator from Washington, Warren G. Magnuson, and how Magnuson was a big believer in the premise that if you don't care about who gets the credit, you can get a lot done. Right. But I still had to ask Jim, Dermott, Jim McDermott a pretty important question about getting credit. Now, I know you don't want to get credit for it, but should this tunnel come to pass many decades from now, would you smile down from heaven if it was named the McDermott Tunnel? <laughs> yes. Well, you know how life is, man. When you die, you die twice. You die once when you pass. And you die a second time when they stop telling stories about you.
Yes, you wow. mentioned that you know we were talking about Slim Rasmussen. He wants to be talked about the way Slim Rasmussen is being talked about now. So. One thing, it does remind me of earlier transportation projects that were just too big and maybe too wacky. You know, we talked here before about the idea of connecting Olympia to Grays Harbor with a ship canal. There were plans to build bridges across Puget Sound via Bainbridge Island. And I guess those things only seem wacky because they never happened. Um, you know, same seems true for a super long Cascade Tunnel. We do have some pretty long tunnels in the Cascades. There's like the one that goes through Stevens Pass, I think is eight miles long. The trains go through and that, you know, avoids deadly avalanches and things like that. You know, and... Um, in talking to McDermott, there's one more thing I want to mention here that, you know, I grew up in kind of an odd family that might explain a lot about my, my radio career. You know, my dad was a conservative Republican, kind of like Dan Evans, mostly because he hated his World War II nemesis and one-time captors of Soviet Union, and he thought Republicans were tougher on commies. But my mom, on the other hand, was a liberal Democrat and super active in party politics in the 70s and 80s. My mom was a volunteer in your 1980 campaign, and she had a Jim McDermott sticker on her Pinto. <laughs> Well, what goes around comes around, man. <laughs> so, uh, I covered that campaign, like a, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you did. I was you did. there the night that yeah. he conceded at the old Eagles Auditorium downtown. And, uh, yeah, he yeah. beat Dixie Lee Ray in the primary, which was a big mm -hmm. deal. He primaried the governor and won. But, I um, mean, he, he was defeated by by, uh, by um, John uh, Spellman. John Spellman, yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, with, with my family, it's like I was raised by Tom and Curly, my mom and dad. So <laughs> they, they canceled out each other's vote every year, so. <laughs> Lucky anyway, you. I don't think this tunnel is going to come to fruition anytime soon, but I love these big ideas. They get you thinking about the possibilities. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been through the tunnel right under the English Channel. That's 31 yeah, miles too. and survived yep. that. So I suppose you could survive this. But, man, would that be expensive, Felix? I, I drove some long tunnel in Iceland that goes under a fjord. It's yes. like 8, 9, 10 miles long. And it's just I was paranoid and, like, breathing badly the whole time. It was terrifying. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MindNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, a Seattle activist led the charge more than 40 years ago to honor Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We interrupt this program for a CBS Radio Net Alert bulletin. This is Gary Shepard, CBS News, New York. Civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King died tonight in Memphis, Tennessee after being shot in the face by an unknown assailant on the balcony in front of a downtown hotel a short while ago. Associated Press says Assistant Police Chief Henry Lux of Memphis confirmed Dr. King's death. April 4th, 1968, one of the darkest days in American history. As recently as the 1980s, there were still people pushing back against Dr. King's legacy. Historian Felix Spinell joins us live every Wednesday, brought to us by the King County Library System, and that includes here. Yes, we're broadcasting from the county seat of King County, which is named officially for Martin Luther King, Jr. Of course, when it was officially named back in 1852, the namesake was William Rufus Devane King, who was vice president for six weeks before he died in office in 1853. Do you recall who the president was then, Dave? I do not. It was Franklin Pierce. Pierce County, King County. Oh, yeah. that's right. Anyway, so the process of rededicating King County was controversial. It took many years. It became official back in 2005. Now, a few years before the effort to rededicate King County began, a group of local activists worked to change the name of a major thoroughfare through Seattle. Do you remember Empire Way? I certainly do. Do you remember where that name came from? No. Yeah, I didn't either. And I looked it up, and I found some reference saying it's about James J. Hill, the Empire Builder from the Great Northern Railway. Mm -hmm. I don't have proof of that, but that's the uh, that's the folklore anyway. They still call it the Empire Builder, right? 
Uh, the, train? The, the train's called the Empire Builder, but James J. Hill, the man, yeah. was known as the Empire Builder, who, because the Great Northern Railway helped create Seattle, make it the big city it is now. Anyway, the activist who led the effort to change Empire Way to MLK Way is Eddie Rye. He's 75 years old, and he's still very active. His dad was a Pullman porter. Their family moved to Seattle in 1952 from Louisiana, and Eddie grew up in the Central District. I met with him a few days ago at the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Way and Cherry Street. He shared his memories of the day that King was assassinated, and he told me how the name-changing effort began one night about a dozen years later. It was November 1980 when Eddie Rye was hosting a radio program on KYAC, the old African-American station, and Jesse Jackson was his in-studio guest. And during the interview, uh, Reverend Jackson indicated that Stevie Wonder was having a huge event on uh, January 15, 1981, to demand that Congress make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday. And since we were so far uh, removed from Washington, D.C., uh, geographically, uh, Reverend Jackson suggests that many cities are having uh, various things done in Dr. King's uh, honor. Uh, this push to have uh, Dr. King's birthday become a national holiday, you know, was more important for people to do things locally to keep pressure on Congress. So Eddie Rye organized a campaign to get the city of Seattle to change the name of Empire Way. You know, his group ran into opposition from people in the community who thought it would be better to name a library or school or even the kingdom after Dr. King. And from the Seattle Board of Public Works, who in May of 1981 suggested renaming just a portion of that street. But he found allies on the city council, and they unanimously passed an ordinance in July 1982, renaming all eight miles from Madison Street way down to the city limits, and Charles Royer, the mayor, signed it on July 29th of that year. But then a group of merchants along Empire Way, mostly south of Rainier Avenue, filed a lawsuit to stop the renaming. So Eddie Rye's group organized a boycott. In that lawsuit, which delayed the process, the lead plaintiff was a guy named Don Hyder, who owned a lumberyard. Eddie Wright told me that the group of merchants claimed only fiscal reasons for their opposition, but he was skeptical. So they was going, we have to change our letterhead. I mean, you know, how much, how much letterhead is a secondhand store or a pizza shop? I mean, I'm, come on, you know. So was it was there something that, some other motive there? Oh, we know what it was. We know what it was. What was it? It, it was racism. That's what it was. And why would there still be? Ra- I mean, this is, sounds. I sound naive. Why would there still be racism in 1980, 1981 in but Seattle? It, it still is right now. And by racism, Eddie Rye says he means that African Americans are still being treated unfairly because of things like Initiative 200 that eliminated um, affirmative action, for things like granting of state contracts and the enrollment of people of color in state universities. He calls this a kind of economic apartheid. But to go back to that lawsuit, um, the lead plaintiff, Don Hyder, passed away more than 20 years ago, but I was able to track down his son, who worked with his dad in the family business. I asked John Hyder if that long-ago lawsuit stemmed from racism. No, no, not not with the, the, the people that were uh, supporting with my father. It, it was strictly a uh, uh, business uh, recognition and financial burden that they were feeling that they were going to have to uh, unnecessarily at that time you know, shoulder. And, uh, you know, I remember at that time, you know, times were were tight, you know, and nobody needed uh, additional expenses uh, of name changing legal documents and letterheads and, you know, signage and things like that. And he's right. The early 80s were a time of recession and recovery. It was tough times. I believe both men are being honest in their perspectives on what happened. And either way, on November 30th, 1983, the state Supreme Court ruled in favor of the name change and the sign started going up the very next day. The first one went up at Cherry Street. And when we were up there the other day, it was clear that the demographic changes in Seattle and especially the central area have had an impact on Eddie Rye's outlook. But he's proud of what he did. Do you have a special feeling when you're driving on Martin Luther King Jr. Way? Yeah. What happened to the brothers and sisters? (laughs) No, not that special. (laughs) 
Well, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a good line. I I, I, you, I'm going to use that. No, oh, I mean, I mean in terms of your role in changing the name. Oh of the yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, that's something that, you know, I can say thank God it was done, and uh, say the same thing about the county. We have the only municipality in the country named for Martin Luther King Jr. up in the remote northwest. And what better tribute that Eddie Rye, in spite of all the challenges he outlines, remains hopeful. As long as I have energy, I have hope because I know change begins with me. Whether I, I'm not the kind of person to go around and try to run, do a study or a, a poll. Do you think we should do this if it's wrong and something needs to be done about it or said about it? I have no problems with doing that. Yeah, and so there's a special program tonight at Mount Zion Baptist Church. Starts at six o'clock, and the reception at six, and a program at seven. I spent yesterday driving up and down Empire Way, the old mm-hmm. Empire Way, in the yeah. Cairo Radio Heritage Cruiser, which is a 15 year old station wagon. By Where'd the way, where'd you get that? I've had it. In my, no, it's, it's, it's just, that's a joke. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I found one sign that still says Empire Way on it. There's a shopping center just north of South Graham Street, and it's big letters: Empire Way Shopping Center. 35 years after the name change, it's still there. How about that? Thank you, Felix. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's raining in Seattle, baby. Please can I come This is Bill Curtis inviting you to tune in to KIRO Felix will enlighten you.